0: Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message.
1: That special relationship, and he's concerned with some of the new arrivals that have entered into the church and wormed their way into areas of influence. The new arrivals have mounted a smear campaign, we found, against Paul and his ministry. He's too weak. He's not. He's, he doesn't have any courage. He's, a, he's not a man of, of great speaking ability. The new arrivals, as we see, have mounted that smear campaign. And they're seeking to build themselves up by tearing Paul down. And we've talked, that seems to be the kind of the way of the world, is it not? And this is causing rebellion and division and factions in the church, and it's hurting the reputation of Christ in the process. And we have to realize that the way in which we present ourselves, the way in which we do church, the way in which we live together, says much about Christ. And unfortunately, when churches struggle and when there's factions, and divisions, it harms the reputation of Christ more than anything. Two weeks ago, Paul had continued his defense against those rivals. We saw that Paul has finally taken off the gloves, so to speak, and is attacking the integrity of those in opposition against him. Since his rivals have been comparing themselves to Paul, he now turns the tables and takes the offensive in order to protect his flock. As he says, indeed, I consider that I am not inferior or least inferior to these super apostles. They have so enamored themselves and spoken themselves up that Paul uses that bit of ironic. They're super apostles. There's nothing super about them. Paul actually says that they're actually ministers and messengers of Satan. And so last week, or two weeks ago, I should say, we looked at four ways. And let me give those to you just because since we had a break last week with Easter, just so you remember where we are. So Paul last week gave four ways in which he was greater than these men. First, he said, I'm greater in knowledge. He understood doctrine. He understood the things of God. He was greater in sacrificial love and how he loved. He was greater in revealing the truth of God, whereas they were concealing and hiding it And using it for their own purposes. And the fourth one we looked at two weeks ago was that he was greater in weakness. In other words, Paul recognized that, hey, I may not be a skilled orator or or skilled in speaking, but yet I'm greater in knowledge and I'm greater in these things. And he, he was glory and gloried in his weakness. And we had ended with a warning to the church. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves who will, and he says you will recognize them by their fruits. The church of God, we said two weeks ago, needs to be active in protecting itself from those that seek to use it for their own gain. And we've all have been in churches, maybe, that we've experienced that in some way. And that's one one reason, one important reason, That We believe in membership and formal membership because the attacks and the and the and the uh, Enemy does not come from without it comes from within Today we're going to discover several more ways in which Paul is greater than these rivals these super apostles So with that you should be with me in 2nd Corinthians chapter 11 and we're going to look at 21 starting with the second part of verse 21 Paul says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offsprings of Abraham? His answer is, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times, he says, I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift of the sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city. Dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Verse 27. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from all other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, he writes, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor of the, under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Father, be with us this morning. You've been with me as I prepared. I pray not that you be with me this morning as I give. Let me not speak of my own wisdom and my own opinion, but let me speak of the words that you have. And Holy Spirit, please have free reign. Let it not be quenched. Uh, search out the hearts this morning. Do the hard work of just tilling the soils of our heart to receive your word. May it find deep, deep root. And may it may be watered. and may it grow. Lord, I pray that we would... Uh, search scripture, not only just for information and and little tidbits, but may we seek for the life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit as he makes us more like Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would fill up what might be lacking in any skill or ability of my own and our own listening. And Lord, may you be glorified. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I want to give you several more things as we continue on what Paul is greater. The first thing we're going to see in the first two verses of this passage is that number five, so I'm going with number five coming off of number four from two weeks ago. The fifth thing that Paul is greater is, is in his heritage. Paul is greater than heritage. Again, verse 21, but when anyone ever else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. Now, when he says that, Paul, again, as you might remember, Paul says it is foolish to boast of oneself. Foolish. But he says, bear with me. This is one of those things where he says, I'm going to answer a fool according to his folly. Let me be foolish. He says, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of, all, of, of Abraham? So am I. What is Paul saying here? Is I too am a man of heritage. From Paul's claim, we can conclude that his rivals boasted in their heritage and accomplishments through difficulty. Good breeding was a common form of rhetoric in the Greco-Roman Empire. It gave a sense of nobility. We do that the same way. You know, you're a blue blood. You know, you hear that time. we, Our family came over with the Mayflower, things of that nature. Who our, our parents are and who our heritage has a lot sometimes to say who we are, and people use that Many times is a thing of prestige and a privilege. His rivals were most likely accusing Paul of not being qualified to be a true apostle since he was not born in Israel. He was born in a, in a Roman city named Tarsus. Not only that, is he had Roman citizenship that was acquired by his father. Now, his father was a Jew, but many were saying, listen, he didn't really walk with Jesus. He wasn't born in Judea. He wasn't born in Israel. There was many that were probably questioning whether or not he could be a true apostle. But Paul is defending his Jewish roots and the right to be called an apostle of Christ. He proudly declares, and this is my own words, I am a Jew and I'm worthy to be called an apostle. However, you and I must realize, just as he's sharing with the Corinthians here, is that boasting in our heritage has no place. For as Christians, Paul has told us that we are new creatures. Old things have passed away. He had wrote written to the church of Galatia that for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What is he saying? That all believers, all Christians, all those who Christ has come and regenerated our hearts, all of us who have turned and trusted in faith in response to what God has done through Christ, are children of Abraham. Jesus had even spoken to the Pharisees and says, I can make seeds the children of Abraham from these stones. Remember the Jews were very proud people. They were the chosen people of God, and so their heritage was very important. But Paul says, listen, they have nothing on me. I am a Jew. I am a Hebrew. He says in reality that in the end that doesn't matter. You know, that's what I like about the church of God. The church of God is an equalizer. It doesn't matter what you make it for a living. It doesn't matter where you are born. It doesn't matter where what you do for a living. It doesn't matter where you live. When you come in through the door, when you come into Christ, we are all equal. We are all children of God. Amen? And we ought to respond in such a way. James will tell us, be not a respecter of persons. God does not look on us in that way. To the Church of Colossae, he wrote that there is neither Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And that was what so was so unique about the church of Christ. And the fact that a free man and a slave were same and equal, and when you came into the house of God, you were brothers and sisters in Christ, so should it be here in this church. The Corinthian church was struggling with that. They were seeking to have privilege and seeking to have better chairs and sit better places and have better food than everyone else. There was a pecking order. Let me tell you, OVBC, we can't have that. But that's not what God has called us to. Though Paul rightfully could boast of his heritage, he knew that in the internal scheme of things that it was worthless. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Philippians chapter 3. And let's look at verses 4 through 8. Paul recognized what was really important. How are you guys doing? Are you guys getting a little bit chilly? Or are you getting a little bit warm? Or are you just comfortable? You're okay? All right. Everybody's okay? All right. Because believe it or not, I'm actually feeling a little bit. Yes, I am. Philippians chapter 3. So if you start getting to the point where you're getting blue, well, one thing is I know that you're awake. Uh, but if you're getting that point, just give me a thumbs up or give me a holler something of that nature, and we'll turn it down a little bit. Philippi, we're, we're in that time of season where it's difficult to get real comfortable. Philippians chapter 3, look at verses 4. Paul recognized what was really of value. For he says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, as you can see, this came up quite a bit with Paul. He says, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. In other words, I followed God to the point of zeal. As to righteousness of the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had of that heritage, of following the law, he says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth Of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as what? Rubbish. You may have garbage. You might have a different word. But he says it's of no value in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says I'm greater in heritage, but in the end, it will not get me into heaven. My heritage does not bring any value, and I'm worthy to throw that away so that I may know Christ. However, the church of Corinth, that was very important to them. They were living as the Corinths do. Instead of living in Rome, they were allowing those types of things to make difference in their lives. So Paul says, I'm greater in heritage, but in the end, no value. The sixth thing that we see that Paul is greater is that he's greater in serving. Look at verse 23. In verse 23, uh, the first part, he says, Are they servants of Christ? What does he say? I am a better one. And I'm talking like a madman with far greater labor. Now look at verse 28. We're just going to skip there for a moment as we look at Paul is greater in serving. He says, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. And apart from other things, in verse 28 he says, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And am I not indignant? Paul is a greater servant than these apostles, these super apostles. You see, serving is the heartbeat of a faithful minister of God. It's not about being served, it's about serving. We looked at that this morning in Sunday school. And again, let me take a commercial break. I want to encourage you, uh, on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock, we're looking at what does it mean to live as a church together. And today we looked at serving and giving. You see, God has called us to serve Christ, or serve, excuse me, as Christ did. As Jesus himself said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was Paul's hard attitude. He did not serve in order to be uh, given praise and to be honored among others. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he had written, this is how one should regard us, speaking of Paul and his workers with him. He says, regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul says, I may be a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I may be a Pharisee. I may be a a great man with weighty letters. I might have started all these churches, but regard me only, please, as a faithful minister of Christ. And what is it required of 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 a steward? That they be found faithful. Paul says, I'm greater in serving. Why? Because I'm a faithful servant of God. Paul had already warned his rivals were not true faithful servants of God, but really servants of Satan. We saw this two weeks ago. This shouldn't surprise no one, as many, many, many people claim to be servants of Christ. But here's a warning. There's many who will serve Christ Yet will find themselves not to be reject, or not to be accepted, but rather rejected by Christ. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. You know this portion of Scripture. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of of evil. We need to recognize that God is the one who will judge. And in this Matthew 7, it doesn't say that they they did not cast out demons. No, they were successful in casting out demons. They did do mighty works, but God says, I reject you. I never knew you. Your serving was not for me, but for yourself. True servants of Christ serve Christ and not themselves. And these super apostles of Corinth were serving themselves and selling the gospel for their own gain. In verse 28, as we look back up there, where he talks about the daily pressures of the church, he mentions the psychological pressures the stress, the anxiety of pastoral care, a care that is similar to a parent over a child. Paul had written to the church of Galatia where he says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul might have been thousands and hundreds of thousands or hundreds and than thousands of miles away from the church, but he was never far in his heart from them. He prayed for them. He loved them. He desired to see Christ formed in you. Now let me pray with you or share with you that that's my prayer. That's the type of heart that I have for you. And that's the heart that each and every one of us should have for each other, that we would see each other become more like Christ. Unfortunately, too many churches, we have individuals who are more concerned about themselves and what they can get out of churches. Paul says, no, I am a greater servant. It shows in the fact that even when I'm away from you, I cannot forget you. You are always on my heart and it causes me emotional care and desires. Not only is he concerned over the purity of the church, but he also suffers when they suffer. Remember, he had written to the church of Corinth that if one member suffers in a church, all suffer, right? We suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's what type of church we desire for OVBC. That's why today we remembered Lori and Janice and Delma and Raphael Sr. and Cat. Why? Because if they're suffering, we too ought to suffer. So many times we hear a prayer request, we may even write it down, but then what? We walk away from church and we forget about them until someone brings them up. But Paul says, No, a faithful servant is one who prays and cares and emphasizes with others. This too is our burden. We should suffer when others suffer and we should rejoice when others others rejoice. So Paul is greater in in his heritage. Paul is greater in serving. And number seven, Paul is greater in suffering. This is just a a powerful portion, portion of Scripture as we look at the second part of verse 23. He says, "...far more imprisonments with countless beatings, and I was often near death." Five times I received that uh, at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers and from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, dangers at sea, danger from false brothers. And toil and hardship through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Do you think that you're suffering for Christ today? Oh, Pastor Rob, I had to get up early. You don't understand, it takes me an hour and a half to get up my makeup and make some food and be here. Oh, when I'm, I'm suffering for Christ, many of us claim. You're going to pass an offering plate? Oh my goodness, Talk about suffering. Paul suffered for the cause of Christ. Let me tell you this this is something that the Corinthians struggled with Paul. And we shared this before, so let me say it real quickly again. They looked at Paul's suffering as an embarrassment. And there are many churches and many people who have this kind of mindset. Also, is that someone who suffers that much? God must be judging them for something. Don't we feel that way? Have you ever done that? When you have you ever been hammering and then hit your na- thumb, and you're thinking, "Oh, God got me for saying that bad word last week," or you know, you're thinking, "What did I do now to deserve this?" suffering is the mark of a true believer and follower of Christ. For many churches and many pastors and for many people, that's the opposite of what they believe. For they believe if you follow Christ, you'll have all the wealth, all the health, and everything that you need for good living. That's what you'll find in many pulpits and many preachers today. You'll hear that. That's what people want. It's itching ears. Tell me what I want to hear. If I give, God's going to give back. We talked a little bit about that last week. The one pastor says, if you give me, what, 300, God will give you back more. The true mark of a believer, of a follower of Christ, is not a great car and a great mansion and a great family and a great retirement benefit package. That's not the mark of a true believer of Christ. A true believer of Christ is one whose life is marked by suffering. So Paul's suffering was a matter of of embarrassment to them. They looked at it and said, there's no way. You and I do the same thing. We see someone struggling in life. They're sick. And what's our first thought? God must be punishing them for something. They must have done something wrong. And not to say that that doesn't happen sometimes. Many times a sickness or a financial problem that can come from our own sin and our own uh, uh, ill um, decisions. The suffering is the mark of a true follower of Christ. Paul understood that suffering is part of the price of following Christ. Jesus told his disciples, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise, the serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, he says, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before the governors and kings for my sake to bear witnesses before them and the Gentiles. The verse I read for our call to worship and the verse that passes that Matt read earlier shares some of the persecutions and sufferings that those who follow Christ will have. Paul's devotion to Christ was supreme as he endured dangers from his own people, the Jews. 39 lashes was a Jewish punishment. The Romans would beat him with rods. That was a Roman uh, punishment. So he would face it from the Jews. He would face it from the Romans. He was in danger in travel. You have to remember he traveled in three different missionary journeys and much more. It was very dangerous with bandits and robbers. Some have estimated that he traveled close to 14,000 miles by foot and by ship. Remember, away from cities and protection. Though the Romans were famous for their roads, there was no protection. There were no motels. There were nothing where you could go. If you were outside the city walls, you were on your own. He was in danger from people in the cities and outside the cities, from friends and foes alike. There was opponents that beat him, and they were always looking to hurt him. Even those that were professing Christians were looking to destroy him. He was in danger from nature. He was living out many times, traveling, exposed. There were no motels and hotels to go to. If he was fortunate, he might find a, 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 an off the way tent or some type, type of thing. It says he was exposed to the elements and harsh weather. And he was danger from economics or from economics and the fact that he had financial hardship. He was poor. He had to work. He carried his tools with him. He had insomnia. He couldn't sleep because of all the anxiety and the cares that was upon him. Paul's life was marked by suffering. Let me share with you, Paul's suffering is similar, similar excuse me, to Christ. As Jesus reflected that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. You know the rest of it. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If anything, Paul's lift list of hardships proved that he was no weakling or that he lacked courage, which we had saw some time ago that they were accusing him of being a coward. Paul says, no, my list of sufferings are long. Those super apostles may say, well, look what we're giving up. Look what we're sacrificing. He says, you know what? I'm going to be a fool. Here's what's happening to me in my life. But yet he continued day on and day on. Let me ask you, how much suffering are you willing to do for Christ? How far do you go and then you say, oh, that's it, that's too much. I can only take too much. We have to realize that the mark of a true believer is a life of suffering. Not only was he greater in suffering, but number eight, Paul was greater in humility. Paul is greater in humility. In verse 30, he says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. He always brings God back to be his judge and his witness. At Damascus, the governor under King Artaeus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall. And escaped his hands. Kind of an interesting story there. In verse 23, he had referred to himself as a madman. You might remember that. He says, I speak as a madman. In essence, he's saying, I'm out of my mind to be sharing all these things with you. They have no eternal value, but here it is. This is his way of telling them, do not boast. There's no value in it. There's no purpose. Self-commendation has no value in the kingdom of God. In this part of the passage, Paul tells them that he has more pride in his weaknesses than his strengths. Again, Paul reminds them that God is his judge and witness, not himself, and it's not our own self-condemnation or commendation, excuse me, that matters, but the commendation of a pure and holy God. The Bible tells us, "appointed on a man once died, then after this, the judgment." God says He will judge the living and the dead for what they have done. And Paul says, "the things that you hold dear will not matter." Paul uses his own humbling escape from Damascus as his example of humbleness. This is an event that happened early in his ministry probably around Galatians 1.17. You might remember that Paul in Acts chapter, I think it uh, must be chapter 8 or 9, is proudly and strongly going to Damascus. You remember that story? And Paul had letters from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he was going to Damascus, and he was going to find out who was Christians. And he was going to drag them out, put them in chains, and drag them back to Jerusalem for more persecution, maybe torture, and maybe even death. And as he was on that road to Damascus, we know the story. He had a divine appointment with a Holy Lord, did he not? And God changed his heart. And Paul goes to Damascus and he finds Ananias. And Ananias, there he is, blinded. Ananias heals him and the scales, it says, comes off his eyes and he's able to see. And Paul gives a little bit of history there in Galatians chapter 1, 17, of what happened afterwards. So here he goes with letters from the religious leaders, ready to put the Christians in their place. But what happens? Christ says, Wait a second. I've got different plans for you. So as he he proudly goes, ready to do what he wants to do, several years later, here is Paul having to humbly escape out of the wall of Damascus. Can't go through the gates. Can't go through the wall, can't go through a window. He has to escape off the side. Not the, probably the way he would want to leave. Kind of leaving a little bit with his tail between his legs. Kind of like uh, the Israelite spies in Jericho when Rahab let them down. Or David, as he was running from Saul, was let down in the very same way by his wife. But Paul says, you think I'm proud now. It's in my weaknesses that I'm most proud in. For even though I had went in with all great intentions, I came out a believer. And yeah, I went out with a a tail between my legs. I had to to escape in in the midst of night, being let out. But that's where I find strength. Paul is greater in humility. He's greater in suffering. He's greater in his heritage. Paul is greater than these apostles. But for you and I, I have to ask the question as I look here at this passage of Scripture and I look at Paul's suffering, I have to ask the question why did God allow Paul to go through so much suffering? Wouldn't it have been much easier if Paul could have used his heritage and all of his power in such a way that would just uh, silence these critics once and for all? For it seems like as we go through that Paul had to continually fight these types of of criticisms. Why did God allow him to go through so much? Well, in Romans chapter 8, we find one of the reasons. The Bible tells us there that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with them. As we'll see next week that Paul glorifies God in his weaknesses, not in the strengths. In the same way, you and I have to realize it's not in our strengths that God is glorified, but it's in our weakness. It's not how we handle the successes of life that glorifies God, though there could be that, but it's when we're in suffering that says so much more about who christ is we suffer for the glory of god take your bible if you would and turn to first peter chapter one for we suffer for for the glory of god we suffer to strengthen our faith and to show the genuineness of our of our profession we have small groups on thursdays at seven o'clock for for the high school college age group and then also for the men and women and i invite you to join with us and the men we've been studying first peter and this was a passage of Scripture two weeks ago for us. Where Peter is writing, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith that's more precious than gold that perishes through though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why does Paul suffer? Why do you and I suffer? For the glory of God. For to test our strength or to strengthen our faith and to test the genuineness of our profession of faith. Many claim, Lord, Lord, but when the suffering comes, you find themselves scattering from God in all sorts of different places. Turn to uh, 2 Timothy, if you would, chapter 3. And this will be the last passage I'll have you turn to. Many of us have a mistaken notion <coughs> of what it means to be a follower of Christ. For many, it's, let's say, a simple prayer. For many, it's just, well, I'm just going to trust in this little thing, and I'm just looking for him to do this. And then we think our life is going to be rose-colored. But in this passage in Second Timothy chapter 3, we find the cost of following Jesus is high. Paul warns Timothy that you, Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that have happened to me at Antioch, and Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from all of these the Lord has rescued me. Indeed, listen to what he says. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Let me share with you. All who live a godly life will be persecuted. Suffering is the norm for the Christian life. And so I would ask, is your life filled with suffering? It should be. Now, the suffering may come in different ways. It doesn't mean martyrdom. It doesn't mean that we're imprisoned. It doesn't mean that our life is falling apart. But it will cost us something as we follow Him. But God has called us to walk in the same way that Christ has walked. Eric Mctaxis, a columnist from the Christian Post, in an article written called, Christians in a World of Trouble, He's writing about a new book called Persecuted, The Global Assault on Christians. In this article, he quotes the authors. Please listen to this. He says, Our Christianity doesn't require us to keep looking over our shoulders, unsure if we'll be arrested for praying or attacked or having a Bible. In America, this, at this point, it's still okay. We don't have to look over our shoulders for that. But the majority of the world's 2.2 billion Christians do look over their shoulders, and they have to. We've been praying for the man and I, uh, the American Iranian, that's in uh, Iran at this point. There's many in, in other portions of country, uh, of the world. He says, "Consider this: Christians are the single most widely persecuted group in the world today. This persecution is targeted at all Christian faiths, whether Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant, to liturgical, evangelical, and charismatic." including hundreds of small, little-known sects. The sources of persecution, they write, are threefold, from communist and post-communist regimes that still hunger for total political control, from Hindu and Buddhist nationalists who see Christianity as a political as well as a religious threat, and radical Islam with its urge for religious dominance. Across the world, Christians are harassed, arrested, jailed, tortured, raped beaten and killed their churches and homes are bombed or burned to the ground and children are taken from their christian parents lest they too become tainted with faith in jesus and you say well that may happen in some backwards that last part i read happens in germany in germany you're not allowed to uh, homeschool and there are many parents who want to homeschool their children because of the christian faith there's one family that just that it came to america so they could do that In America, the State Department says we are not going to give you asylum and are sending them back to Germany where those children have been taken away at least once by the German uh, government because they would not stop teaching their children their faith. It's here. Here in California, your children will be taught that gay marriage is not only okay, but it's normal. And any call to say that it's wrong or sinful will be like Canada that claims that as hate speech. It's knocking on the door. Suffering will come. Persecution will come. Some of you experienced that in a small way just this past week. But listen to this, and this is the end of this article. For many of us Americans, we don't think of suffering in that type of way. We think it's far from us. But ignorance of the world, he writes, is a luxury we cannot afford. We must know our faith, know our world and its struggles, and then open our hearts, engage our minds, and lift our hands. There are many Christians who are too quick to say, let's just What's the word I'm looking for? Um, let's just disengage. Let's not fight a cultural war. Let's just step aside. Let's no longer get involved. Let the world do what we want. We're just looking for that escape hatch of Jesus coming again. Scripture tells us to be involved. To get involved. To stand up for the cause of Christ to be willing to suffer for his name willing to be persecuted for his name here's the challenge and I shared with this several weeks ago we as a church we must be ready for that i'm calling you to sacrifice and count the cost of discipleship it may cost you friends it may cost you money it may cost you relationships it may cost you peace of mind with others God has called us to godly living. Regardless of the cost, you and I are to follow Christ. Not for self-promotion, but for Christ promotion. And I pray may we, like Paul, gladly bear the marks of Christ in obedience to the Father. Father, I pray that you would just come and do the work in our hearts that need to prepare us for the cost of discipleship I'm concerned that many here even here at OVBC have not really counted the cost they've said the prayer they say they want to follow Christ but yet when it comes to the difficult work of suffering for you for obeying you and, and living out the, the godly principles Lord we just say it's too much and we disengage strengthen us for the battle ahead may we be bold with your word not in our own opinion not in our own rightness, but, Lord, that out of love we would share the truth of your word, for it is the words of eternal life, for friend or foe alike. Strengthen us. May we, like Paul, count our heritage, count all those things as nothing. Lord, let us lead in a way that is example of you in serving, in living, and in suffering, and in giving. Thank you for your work. Pray this in your name.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing your review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org.